so good. Summer's kind of a relaxed time, it seems like. Um, it's one of the times where people kind of just kind of kick back a little bit and, and aren't quite as tense. But we are very, very busy. That's one thing that is true about it. And uh, as, as uh, the summer has rolled on, I've realized it's half over. And it's, it's crazy, crazy busy in a good way. Um, if you're married, you may have experienced this, and I experienced this <laughs> in different ways myself, but sometimes people, when they have, like, for example, the project is to clean the garage for the weekend, okay? <laughs> and we have a couple who look at each other. And you have people who are savers, and then you have who are keepers, and then you have people who are what? Trashers or chuckers or something. They get rid of stuff, right? And there's this contention between the two. Is this, is this worthy of the space that it takes in, in our garage or whatever it is? Well, as we look at Psalm 119, as I mentioned last week, really the Psalm 118 is actually kind of an autobiography of the Bible. It is speaking the qualities and the magnificence of the book. So one chapter of the Bible actually speaks to the quality of the whole Bible itself, which is pretty neat how God, had, he did that right in the smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Here's this magnificent chapter that's all about it. Well, sometimes we recognize that the Bible is such a, such a valuable book, and peop, some people value it more than others, and some people would be just chucking it, and some people would be keeping it. Well, there was a, a collector of rare books, and he ran into an acquaintance who told him he had just thrown away an old Bible that he found in the dusty old box. So he was telling him, I just threw this old Bible away, it was in a box, whatever, and he said it had somebody's name on it named Guten something, and he had printed it, and the, and the collector said, not Gutenberg, not Gutenberg. He gasped, yes, that was it, Gutenberg. That's the name that was on it. He goes, you idiot. You've thrown away one of the first books ever printed. A copy that recently sold at auction was over half a million dollars. Oh, I didn't think that, that this book would have been worth anything close to that, he said. He said, it was scribbled all over in the margins by some guy named Martin Luther. God's word is valuable. It is valuable whether it was scribbled on by Martin Luther or printed by Gutenberg because it's what we read and we glean from. It's not necessarily the inherent value what you can sell it for at some, place, some sale. It's the fact that this Bible is living and active. And last week as we had the, the rodeo, we had family in town and so full house. And uh, one of the neat things about that was we had a opportunity to just be talking outside. And one of our family members asked me, what do you think about this in the Bible? And first of all, I just think that was going to happen. But secondly, the next thing they said, and this is so neat because this person has probably read some of the Bible, I've heard some of the Bible, but doesn't talk in Christianese. So you've, you've, you've met new believers who don't yet know the words that Christianese people use all the time. And so they, they speak things and it's refreshing. And she said, it's like when you read it, it's moving. Like the first time you read it, it's this. And then the next time you read it, it's, it's a little different. And every time you come back to it, she says, it's saying something just a little bit different in a different way. And I thought, wow, if you only knew that you were just quoting the Bible just now, that it is living and active, and it is something that moves, it literally moves as the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we read it. That's the value of the Bible. That's how we read it to change our lives. And so as we look at Psalm 119 today, I want you to recognize that 
we really are, we have, a, we have an amazing, amazing book. And this book is an amazing book, not because of necessarily who printed it or, or anything else, but it is a living book. It is God's way of speaking to us even today as we read it. And it's just as, as contemporary now as it was in the first century in terms of how it affects us and how it gives answers to some of the things that we sometimes will struggle with. Today, we're going to be looking at a couple of different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so An is the first one, and then Pei will be the next one. And I pronounce those completely incorrect. I'm sure if you were a Hebrew scholar, you'd correct me. But there they are right there. Those are, those are the letters. And the, those are the importance of these two, cha- the, two, the importance of these two chapters really have to do with the first one is deliverance. And the next one really has to do with God's word and its value in our lives, not just for us, but also for others uh, who don't necessarily know God. And so as we look at these verses, uh, we will be looking at some of the things that, that God wanted us to learn hundreds and maybe even thousands of years ago. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, Lord. Your law is being broken. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. And so those are the first eight verses that uh, Psalm 119, uh, 121 to 28 talks about. In the very first one, he says that he's done what is righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I was like, oh, well, you think you're pretty hot, don't you? But what he's saying is this. He's living the path that God wanted him to, to live, not necessarily that he hasn't sinned because he will admit that he's sinned. Because later on he says he seeks his salvation and he understands that he's human, that he, he does sin and he does mess up. But he's on that path and he's pursuing God at that, at that point in his life. And he's asking God to not, to, to not allow his oppressors to, to have a hold of him. Do not leave me to my oppressors, he says. And in the very next verse in 22, he says, ensure your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. And so there are, there are the proud and the arrogant in this, in this text, and there's also this psalmist who is struggling. And why is the psalmist struggling? Well, let me ask you this. If you, example yesterday, um, went to uh, Uncle Don, LaDonna's uncle, we call him Uncle Don because that's who it is, he passed away about 11 days ago, 12 days ago. And so funeral yesterday, and I went up in the, early in the morning as I was part of that, and as I went to Wendy's, the spiritual place that it is. Um, I ordered my stuff and got my four for four and, and uh, sat down, just telling you. And, and I sat there and I saw a table a little ways away from me. And it's nice to see it from your perspective. It's kind of like watching a car wreck. You don't really want to be in it, but you kinda, you know, it's kind of interesting to see. And what happened was, and this is not a car wreck, but here's this couple who just got their food and what do you think they did? And the people around them watched them as if it was a strange thing. They prayed. They prayed. And the people around, I could just tell, the people around them were looking at them like, huh, wow. Now, you may not call that oppression, but it looked a lot like it. And it could have been. 
and you recognize if you're living on the path that God wants you to live on and doing the things he wants you to do, not because of for show or anything like that, and that was definitely not. 15 seconds, thank you for the food, they were done. But what the world is going to do is do what? They will naturally oppress you because when someone, and you just know this, you see in families there's maybe a goody two-shoes of the family. And the other ones, what do they do? They kind of pick on them. They try to go, well, he, she's not so good or he's not so good. It's just the way it is. If you're living a godly life, you will be what? Persecuted. You will. Jesus said, you know what? Eh, this is the way it's going to go. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So this psalmist is just saying, oh, protect me from my oppressors because I'm trying to live this life that follows you. And as we live our lives, we have to recognize that is going to be true. And as we grow closer to Jesus and are more like him, it could be even truer. And yet at the same time, the psalmist knows that that's way, way better to live close to God than it is to worry about some other people who are maybe looking at you while you're praying. Verse 23, my eyes fail looking for your salvation looking for your righteous promise. I had to read that one over and over, and I'm thinking, wow, that is so amazing. So I hate to connect this with what's most recent, but probably is in my mind. I was out driving away from the, 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 the funeral. I, I drove by MSU campus, and, and that's, that was my first alma mater. I, first degrees came from there. So I drove by my, first of all, my Culbertson Hall and my little basement part. I could kind of see it. They had remodeled, looked really kind of, actually kind of nice. And then I drove by, <laughs> it wasn't at the time, Culbertson Hall underdwellers, they used to call us, because we're all engineer students, and we were underdwellers. We never went anywhere. We just stayed in our rooms and studied. So that's, that was it. It looks nice now. And then I drove by another couple buildings, and then I, I went by the Strand Union Building. And that, for me, was just this, it was probably the funeral, but I actually had tears running from my eyes as I drove by it. I was like, whoa. And it was this recognition of the fact that that's where my journey in this book began. It's like, whoa, there's the book. There's the place where the book became real to me 30 years ago. 30 years ago, just, well, 30, 31. That's where... Three people were sitting next to me in a booth talking to an individual who obviously didn't understand the Bible, and they were explaining God's plan of salvation to this person. And I was waiting for my fries, as I've explained before, which I never, ever went to this uh, student union building. I forgot my lunch that morning. What are the chances out of all the mornings, 365 of them, forgot it that morning that I would be sitting right there listening to the very questions that I had in my own mind as they answered, you mean that you can know God? And this person was asking these questions, and what about my sin? And that's what Jesus came for, to pay for, and that you aren't made to, to live up to this perfect law. And after the whole thing was over with, this guy named Dave leaned over and kind of as he was putting on his coat said, hey, I noticed you were kind of listening in on our conversation. It must have been obvious. And I said, and I normally would have said, oh yeah, my fries are due, and I'd have been out of there, but I didn't. I said, I have a couple of questions for you. And like an hour or two later, wow, this book all of a sudden came alive. And I couldn't get enough of it. And although my eyes didn't fail, looking for a salvation, whew, powerful, powerful. My eyes failed looking for your salvation, 
looking for your righteous promise. And as I prayed that prayer with that individual, I would have never prayed in public, much less, I mean, you know, thank you for the food, maybe, maybe. But I prayed in public that I might know the Lord, that I would receive him, that I'd admit that I was a sinner. I said, I, I admit it. I am totally, no way can I live up. I believe Jesus, and he just said, you just need to choose to follow him. And then after that, I was like, did I really do it? I really do it? And as I sought his word, it became real to me. It wasn't until I was in his word that it actually seated with me and made sense. Like, oh, this is the whole plan, that we weren't to live up to these commands. We were to live to know Jesus who lived up to these commands. And that was so freeing to realize. You mean if I just follow Jesus, imperfect as I am, and the word confirmed that to me. And so that was a beautiful time just driving by. I don't know why driving by a building, you'd, but just kind of brought me back to that point where, wow, that's what happened. That's what God did 31 years ago. 24, deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. And there's this covenant love relationship that he speaks of, and he knows he's in it, and he knows that they're coveted together, much like a couple, a married couple are, and that there's certain things that you can guarantee that are not going to change. And so what he's saying with him is this, deal with me in love, because I'm not perfect, but teach me your decrees. He's literally asking him to be his teacher. Back in that day in Hebrew world, you would, you would attach yourself to someone and you kind of follow them around. That's why the 12 disciples didn't have much trouble with following Jesus around that because that's what they did. But he's asking God to actually use his word to be his instructor. Really neat just to, just to see. It's kind of audacious in some ways, but it's exactly what God asks us to do. Let me be your teacher. Yeah, other believers for sure, but let me be the source of who instructs you. And then he goes on, I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. Wow. And he's, he's understanding that not just is it that we listen to the word or read the word or hear the word, it's that we would understand the word and then apply it to our lives. And discernment has to do with reading it and knowing how it applies to us. It's the book of Proverbs. It's wisdom. It's application of knowledge to actual everyday living. So how am I supposed to get from Monday through Friday and Saturday through Sunday the way you want me to live. That's what that's talking about. He's asking him to be the kind of person who lives out his word. And then in 26, as audacious as he is, have you ever said, okay, Lord, it's time for you to act. Boom, put down the <laughs> Okay, and maybe you have. It's like, I have had enough of this or whatever the issue. It could be your kids or it could be your parents or it could just be you, okay? It is time for you to act. You need to change me right now. Lord, your law is being broken. What's he all bent up about? It wasn't that someone cut him off. It wasn't someone who, who, who cut in line here at the grocery store or someone who didn't do this or that. It was what? Your law is being broken. And he's bent up about it, isn't he? Why is he bent up about it? Passion. Thank you. Passion. He has passion for the word. He knows the value of this word. word. And he knows that, the, that they're not only just, they're dissing his word, but they're actually dissing God. They're, they're putting him down. Have you ever heard someone diss the Bible before? Oh, sure you have. And, and by doing that, they're dissing God. And, and last week, and I don't want to get too far because I can't get too far into this, but 
Just recognize that the word logos was made flesh and lived among us. And that word, this word right here, was personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you diss this word, who are you dissing? Have you ever seen a, a mama bear come out with claws when someone attacks their kids? What is this to God? Jesus in writing. He personified everything. People were like amazed by him. He would just quote the Old Testament. At one point in time in Luke, he quoted the Old Testament and they were just astonished. All he did was read what everybody else read, but they knew it matched his life. And you go, wow, that is so amazing that they would just look at him and go, that man, he looks like that book. And so this psalmist is all bent up about the fact that they're breaking his law and, and he's, he's in tune with God and he understands that. And so he's acting, he's asking God to act on his own behalf. Stand up for yourself, God. He knows God's got it. He, he, it is mine, to, it is mine to, to take care of things is, is what the Lord says. 27 says, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. And what he's affirming here is that his word is so valuable to him, more valuable than, than, than his IRA or his 401k or anything else, his, his retirement plan or his job or his career or whatever it is, is that the Lord and his word is more important than all of that. And he realizes that he hates the path of the arrogant. And the thing that will keep someone away from the word and from Jesus, in my, in my view, is really the number one thing. And there are sometimes some things, some bitterness and things like that because of things that happen. But pride and arrogance are the number one reason why people will not know the Lord and not go to heaven. And I have pride and arrogance inside me, and so do you. But there is this point where people, when they finally get over that, they finally can come to the Lord. And that's what he's pointing out right here is that wrong path, is that path of arrogance that I can do this myself. I can figure this out myself. I'm smart enough. I know enough science. I know enough logic or whatever that I can reason myself through this world and into the next world. And that's not who made the world up. Logic didn't make the world up. God did. God's word is wonderful. We get to pay the next letter. He says, your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. We talked about light last week, that the lamp to my feet and the light to my path. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do, those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant. And teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. And when we, whoops, when we, we see this, we recognize that the psalmist is, is talking about how wonderful God's word is. And, and to be honest with you, when I came, when I, was, when I was in the Strand Union building, I had read parts of the Bible. I didn't know how to, honestly, my senior year, we had confirmation I didn't even know how to look up a Bible verse. So if you would have said, like, look up Matthew 25, whatever, I would I was just like, what do I do? I had no idea. And so I, probably my, maybe I was the dollar crayon in the box, but I just didn't get what was going on. And, and so when I came to, to know the Lord, I just was like a baby starting out, just like, how do I learn? How do I know what to do with this thing? And 
So as we look at this book, you just realize, wow, it is so amazing. And yet, when you look at it from an ongoing, and I have to bring myself back to that point, what do people see when they just come to church for the first time? You, sometimes it's really helpful to have someone kind of walk through your building and go, as an oncomer to go, is it easy to flow? How, can you find the bathroom? Can, can you find the cookies, more importantly? But can you kind of navigate through this? And the building is one thing, but this book is another thing because it is so rich and it is so unique. But as you look at it from a person who's just starting out brand new, you got this amazing book that's been written by 40 different authors, three different languages, three continents, 10 countries, over the course of 1,500 years, and you're like, oh my gosh. And they have, it has one central theme, and that theme is woven in between. And you're like, these guys are in different places at different times. They didn't even know each other. And yet they nearly quote each other. And you're like, man, there's something common to all of these authors. And of course, we know what it is, because who inspired it? One Holy Spirit did. But when you look at the book, you don't see it that way. I remember kind of just learning about the even just the form of the, of, the, of the book. I mean, if I was to ask, I think this is, and our junior hires do, our Sunday school does a great job. I'll ask our junior hires, how many books are there in the Bible? And they'll be able to tell me. Most all of them will be able to tell me. And then I start asking them questions about the Bible, and they're like this or that. But they grew up there. I didn't. And the person who you might bring to church next week didn't either probably. And so you see this as just this so important. It's the central thing of our faith, really. It's Jesus incarnate, and it's what we do to, to learn more about God and to have a relationship with on a daily basis. And yet you have this book that is so, so amazing. And so you have 66 books. It's a book with books inside of it. 39 of those books are Old Testament, and 27 are New Testament. And you're like, okay, when I finally grasped that, I'm like, okay, numbers make sense to me math major. So, okay, so there's 39 old ones and 27 new ones. What does that mean? Well, then it breaks out even further. By the way, if you're in junior high youth, probably class John, old has three, how many letters in it? O-L-D, three. Testament has how many letters in it? Some of you are going, I think I know what he's doing now. It has nine if you count them out. And how many books are there in the Old Testament? 39. And if you take new, how many letters? And testament, how many letters? We already know this one, don't we? Nine. And you take them times to each other, what are they? 27. New Testament, 27. Old Testament, 39. Put them together, you get how many? And this is when the old, oh, he's going to ask us to add them together. And they're, or subtract, even worse. And you're like, wow, that's cool. But then you look at the Old Testament, you go, and this is kind of off the, well, here's a camera. The Old Testament's neat. We have 17, 5, 17. We're right in the middle of five at Psalms. 17 historical books. We have the Pentateuch, five, leaving 12 left. We have five poetical books. Psalm is one of those books. Song of Solomon is one of those. Ecclesiastes, Job. So we have five of those books. And then we have 17 prophetical books. And those are Isaiah and Micah and all of them. And there are five major prophets. Remember five over here, that Pentateuch. And then there are 12 minor prophets. So you have this 17, 5, and 12, 5, 17, 5, and 12, Old Testament. And in some way, it helps you just navigate, go, okay, I think I understand a little better how God wrote this. And this historical books were all about the formation of a nation that God would use to raise up a 
a savior who would then be a blessing to the whole world. And that was the theme of those books. And the poetical books is all about this internal spiritual life that we have. Read the book of Proverbs. So much wisdom in that. And then you have the prophets are all about their future and how Jesus is going to be king and how that's going to play out. And you go, that's the Old Testament. And that gives us a precursor. It's a veiling of what was to come. In the New Testament, you have five historical books, four gospels plus Acts. Five books. Here we see the five again. And then you see 21 epistles and one prophetic book called Revelations, which we know is. Those 21 um, epistles are written by the apostles primarily. And an epistle is what? A letter written by the wife of an apostle, right? No, it is not. If you're online, don't say that. But it is a letter written by an apostle and is to instruct the church on how to live. And you're like, oh, that's what the Bible is all about? Five historical books, the life of Jesus, the four gospels, Acts, the life of the early church. And then we have these epistles writing them to different uh, Christian uh, churches, if you want to think of it, how to live, how to correct certain things. And then we have revelations, which tells us what? How it's all going to end. And it's awesome. And you realize that's the Bible, and that was God's plan to allow us to see the whole thing. And that is why Psalm 119 says, this is an awesome, awesome book. And when Psalm 119 is saying, your word is awesome, it's talking about all of those. All 66 biblios, which means book, and that's why they call it the good book, made up of 66 smaller books. And that's amazing, and that's why people can't talk bad about the Bible, because the Bible is such an amazing book. It is such an amazing book. It is so amazing. There was a quote by, anyway, it's so amazing that they used to think that the world was flat at some point in time. That was the cutting-edge science, wasn't it? What did Isaiah say? It's a circle. It's a circle. They used to do bloodletting. They used to think that's, if you were sick, that you needed to lose blood. Now when, when you get sick, what do they do? They give you blood. What did the Bible say? The life is in the blood. And you realize, oh, wow. They used to think wind didn't have any weight to it or mass. The Bible said it has mass. There's something there. They used to think that wind went straight. Now we know it's in cyclones. The Bible says it's in cyclones. There's all of those things you just realize. The Bible is a special book. Those guys did not know those things. But who did? The creator of the world who wrote the book. And that's why we go, wow, there's something really, really special about them. And if we don't go on, we're going to be here all day long. Sorry about that little tirade. All right. The unfolding of your words give light. This is what we talked about last week. That, that we'd be a lamp to our path and a light to our, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet and realizing that his, the unfolding is in an illumination. And if this, and I've done this before because this place gets really dark at night. And if you turn on one little light in here when it's, when it's dark, it's amazing. It just, whew, like just a little bit. The unfolding of your words give light. When you start reading, and especially as a new believer, and you start reading those, those words, and all of a sudden things start clicking, you realize that's exactly what it is. It's like opening up the doorway and letting light shine into mostly your heart. It gives understanding to the simple, meaning humble. Not simple, but people who are willing to learn and willing, approaching your Bible and just saying, God, please teach me what you want me to know today. And that would be a good way to approach every single day, actually. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. And I think this is so great because as the deer pants for streams of water, 
so my soul pants for you, my God. You realize that when you're thirsty, you want what? You just want water. And if you're thirsty, are you interested in a chocolate cake? Well, you might be, but you know it won't go down. (laughs) It just waters what you need, right? And so you realize that there's this panting for the word that there's, when you've not been in church for a while and you have not been in fellowship, you, people come up, that was the most amazing service I've ever had. And I'm like, oh yeah, you haven't been in church for a while. That's exactly what I think. Because spiritually, there's a shriveling up that occurs. Remember how the ground kind of just shrivels up when it's dry? And when it rains, it swells back up. That's exactly our spiritual life. That's what those poetical books kind of refer to. It's a book of psalm. I was so funny. I was, I was driving up the hill. Tangents galore today. Here's this buck. There's a line of cars. And when there's a line of cars in, in Sheridan, you just wonder, what is going on? There's been an accident or something. Here's this buck right up here eating Mrs. Johnson's petunias or something and holding everything up. And I think to myself, I was thinking of this verse right here. As the deer pants for water. You realize that he was not concerned with anything else around him. The 10 cars behind him, no matter, his butt was just like a foot from people's, it was just like this the whole way. One track. I want your word and that's all I want. That's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm focused on. The psalmist is describing his desire for God's word. Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Do you love God's name? It's beautiful. We sing it. We sing it, Jesus. We, it is the most beautiful name there is. And in heaven, it's going to be even more beautiful because we won't be so distracted. But he's saying, turn to me. He's actually asking God to turn to him. And you know, in the Old Testament, when God looks at you or when you see God's face, you know, not such a good thing. But what he's saying is having grace and mercy on me. What is grace? It is getting something that you did not deserve, right? So somebody hands you 100 bucks and they give it to you, and you didn't deserve it. You, you might be the dredges of the earth, but they give you a hundred bucks, and it's grace. Mercy on their, their hand is what? It's when you need a spanking, and you don't get it. And so there's this perspective that we all know that we sin, and we, when we sin, we, we would know that the right thing to do is that we would be punished. But what he's saying here is this, you know what? There's mercy. Have mercy on me. He recognizes, even though he's on the righteous path, which is the first verse, he needs mercy because he's not perfect. He's not God. He needs grace and mercy. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Oh, wow. You, have you ever prayed for deliverance from a sin that you're just hung up with? And you just might review your life right now and realize Part of the sin that one of the sins that we have is fear. Fear is a, of course, there's a song about it. Fear is a what? A liar. Okay, and he's a liar because it kind of, it's fear and trust run like two different spectrums. And you realize that one of the sins that we have is just fear alone, not trusting in God on an ongoing basis. And you realize, oh, wow, what he's saying is that don't let that rule over me. Whatever it is that you, whatever it is, not just fear, but whatever it is, maybe it's some kind of a thing that you're tempted to and that you're drawn to, and it's there. And what he's asking the Lord to do is to take those out of his life so that his footsteps would follow him more closely, that he would not get off the track that is best for his life. Redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. And again, he asks God to protect him from all of the stresses and strains and the pressure of a world that doesn't understand 
what it's like to have a relationship with God. And then he says, make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Have you ever had God's face shine on you? I would argue that almost every single Sunday when you come here and you are with God's people and you sing songs that attribute how God is so great that God's face actually shines on you. When you spend time in his word and you have read and you, you just, you leave a different person because you realize I have, my, I have my morsel for today, God's face has shined on you. And what he's asking God to do is to shine his, his face on him so that he might actually go out from having his, his face shining to actually shine for other people. Have you ever met a Christian and you just know they're a Christian, but you didn't, they didn't even say anything? Because why? You can't really put your, face, your finger on it, but they shine. They shine because they've spent time with God's face shining on them. And so there's a reality that's there that no one else necessarily believe, but you know it's true. It's there. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. And here's this passion again for his law. And it reminds me of Luke. It reminded me of Luke 19 where it says, As he approached Jerusalem, Jesus, on the donkey, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Oh, there is a solemn sort of feeling that you have when you recognize that someone is too prideful to receive the Lord or to even turn towards him. And you just recognize, wow, it makes you, it literally will make you weep. Especially if, if it's someone who's just close to and, it, and you just, it, it, one of your, your family members, for example, or someone who you just know who you want to know the Lord. You want them to know the Lord, but, but they don't. And because there's roadblocks or whatever it is. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Your law is not obeyed. They are, they're going their own way. And what he says, law is not obeyed, is really to reject Jesus. Really is truly, because he is, he is the law incarnate. And he actually met the law, fulfilled the law. Some applications from Psalm 139, uh, uh, from this verse, uh, these 16 verses here. Do you need deliverance? Is there something you need deliverance from? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's something that you're, always, you're trapped in and, and it's distracting you from following the Lord. Are you trusting and petitioning the Lord? Do you ask like the psalmist and almost boldly, Lord, please give me these things. Allow me to have peace or whatever it is that you're missing. For discernment, protection, guidance, do you turn to him for love, truth, light, direction? And do you let his face shine on you in his word and allowing him, him to shine on you so that you can go out and shine for other people? And that love is really, that word oikos is really a Greek word that means family, extended family, people you know. People, yesterday, when I went to the funeral, of course, I, I come in and, and it's LaDonna's family and, and then Don's friends from Bozeman. He, a lot of people knew him. He was a kind of a rodeo guy and just had been in the valley for a long time and kind of a leader. He really had a pig fest and people come over from all different walks of life and so um, there was a lot of people there, probably 150 people. And I just realized as I looked across the, the room that everybody, you know, we're, we all, we're all getting older, okay? <laughs> and everyone looked grayer and the people who, from his family, you know, and there's so much loss lately and just realizing they lost Jade and, and Blaine and then, you know, Bev and then Don and just, just a myriad of losses in the last two years in, in the family. 
but realizing that they needed so much to know the Lord, so much. Because when you're at a funeral and Uncle Don is gone, what else is there? What else is there? There is nothing. It was, what was neat is to hear about Don's faith from uh, some of the people who maybe knew him a little bit more. And he was a quiet guy in terms of his faith. I found out that he loved Jesus. And that wasn't something I necessarily picked up. I knew he had a soft inner side and a crusty outer side. But, he, but knowing that just was so amazing because just to, to hear that and to know that, to be able to point people in that direction. And looking out across the, the room, just sharing with, and, and you can tell, now you're a little different. When I talk about the Bible or I talk about spiritual things, you don't look at me um, this way. You know, some people are crossing their arms like Sandy right now, but, but there's a lot of crossed arms. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I love, she's cold. Um, but it was, when I was sharing, there was less of this and more of leaning into what I was saying. I just realized that the Lord had softened hearts. So they heard the gospel, whether they wanted to or not, because I'm not going to go into those situations and not give them hope. You can say the most appeasing things. Don has peace now. Don has this or that. And maybe he does and he doesn't kind of a thing. But when you can point them to this book and to his truth, boy, that's a privilege. And many of them afterwards, you could tell, they're like, you know, I really resonated with what, what you said. I said, it's really just what God's book says, and that he is with Jesus right now as he has a relationship with him, and that we too can look forward to that. And the only reason we know that is because of this book. There's no other reason that we would have hope at a funeral. All funerals are looked exactly the same if you took this away. He lived a life, and now he's gone. That's it. But because of this, it's just the beginning for Don. And the best, the best, is yet to come. That's the shining that we allow the world to see as we go out as a church. And you have your avenue of people that you can speak to, and I have my avenue of people to speak to, and they're not necessarily the same people. But as we recognize the importance of God's word in our own lives, it's like a beggar telling another beggar what? Where to find the food. I came as a sinner, and so does everyone else, and we offer God's word to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Psalm 119. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises in, in your word. Thank you that we have so much to look forward to as we are oppressed in lots of ways, just like your son was, that we would look to you to strengthen us, to help us stand up under that persecution and oppression that we would turn to your word, that we would value it as gold, purest gold, refined, that it would be the, the substance of our lives, that we would turn to it daily, and that we would get guidance, that our light to our, our, our lamp to our path and a light to our world would not just shine in our world, but also to the people who are around us, that we would have people behind us following us, whether it's our kids or people who we work with, people who we get to know, Lord, that we would have the influence that your son had on us, on them, as we follow you, that they too would find salvation and goodness in your word. And we just pray this in your son's name. Amen.